I think we try to just like work almost in a vacuum, not in the sense of like a vacuum of where our work will go and what it will touch. But I think that the second you start to challenge yourself to be like, this has to sort of be, you know, the most original, incredible thing that stands for everything and says everything and contains all the rules for every possible occasion, you then start to actually weirdly limit yourself and what you can do with that brand. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I'm Britton Stepetic, and this is Low-Key Legends, the show where I interrogate your favorite creative legends and bring you nuggets of wisdom on your creative journey. Today, I am joined across the screen by the three partners of All Right Studio. We have Spencer, Tucker, and Garrett. If you don't know, All Right Studio is a Brooklyn-based full-service strategy, creative, and technology agency, creating best-in-class work for any sort of client, big or small, established or upstart, commercial or otherwise, no house style nor any allegiance to medium or method, meaning they can do it all and they certainly have. So without further ado, let's get into it. Guys, it's winter. It snowed the past two days here in Cape Cod. Take me back to summer. I want to hear all about All Right Summer Camp. <laughs> what is the kind of team building and culture building opportunity of having a company retreat, even if it's just two days long? Totally. Uh, so this is something that we have done as a studio, even from the time that we were basically like three people. Um, we find that it's really helpful and valuable to get out of New York City and just focus on the agency from like a macro point of view, not so much client work. Um, the summer retreat, the sort of impetus behind it was that we had just brought on our first middle management role, um, which at the time, uh, the title was associate design director. And now we've kind of transitioned that title into creative director. Um, and basically we wanted to get the whole group together uh, outside of New York and talk about how that was gonna impact the future of the studio. Uh, we've had a really, sort of busy and hectic summer. We were learning about the concept of pitching. Um, everybody was kind of in a transitional moment in their role, which we can also get into perhaps later in the interview here. Um, but we wanted to kind of talk candidly with the group about where they wanted to see All Right kind of ending up now and into the new year. Um, and also how we would use this kind of middle management role to sort of be like a layer between three partners and the rest of the team. Um, Thing. Yeah, I think that, you know, primarily the reason why we started doing these and, you know, I don't know, we'll get into it later, we can talk about it now, but we kind of have a culture of taking breaks in some way, because I think that from the start, we realized that it was very difficult for us to do any macro thinking or any truly relaxing or resting while the studio was in operation, which just was so much all the time so currently occupied and fully occupied on what was in front of us that we put these little like checks and balances in place like a retreat where we could take the team away and just kind of focus on talking about the company talking about growth the future team culture everything like that and we also have a studio break at the end of every summer where we close the studio for two weeks every year we've done that since our first year in operation here or our first year since this current version of all right studio as a way to just kind of allow everyone to get some mental downtime because you know even like a vacation that we took outside of that really wasn't able to do that 
And yeah. we also um, are pretty liberal about our, our remote working policy. I think that is pretty obvious given that I, I live in Tennessee these days. Um, and uh, it was it's really, really important to get everyone in the same room for like a time where we aren't just sitting down to get stuff done. Um, so for that reason, we always kind of go into our retreats having a bit of an agenda, but we also just make a lot of time to just hang out, which seems pretty self-explanatory, but that's really, you know, one of the kind of key, um, like, deliverables of the time together. On those retreats, are you just focusing on talking about the studio and like where you're heading or are there kind of like activities or things that you do uh, outside of kind of like, we'll say like working time, even though you're not working, you're working on the studio? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like the point of the retreat is almost uh, everything outside of the studio conversations. Um, we've learned now, having done this a few times, that like a lot gets done in three hours of just focused chit chat. So most of the programming is just people hanging out. We try to rent cool houses uh, that have features, whether that's like a movie room or a pool or a lake or whatever. Um, everybody, mm. yeah, big kitchen. Um, we we typically cook uh, a lot rather than kind of go out. Um, maybe we'll do like one excursion just to break up uh, the 48 hours that we're retreating. Um, mm. But really the point is everybody hanging out and chilling. And we've done a really good job, I think, uh, of bringing together groups of people that are just good hangs. Um, and the retreat is sort of supposed to be, uh, I don't know, an opportunity to lean into that. Right on. You had written, and I think it was an Instagram post that, it's our strong belief that the most fulfilling project we can engage in as a studio is ourselves. Can you talk more about that and your kind of philosophy about culture building at All Right? I think that that is something, you know, to be transparent, we borrowed from friends and idols of ours, the guys over at PlayLab, mm -hmm. which was a philosophy that they have that the studio is your ultimate project. And I think that we've tried to look at it that way, you know, rather than maybe angling for a specific client or market share or whatever it is, we realize that like, this is the thing that we love. This is what we're doing. And this is really, at the end of the day, it gives us a, a, a place to focus our decision-making on, on what we want the studio to be and what we have to do day to day to get it to that place. Garrett, what do you think? I know you have some opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, uh, and I'm sure this will kind of organically get talked about in various ways. Our R right has had um, a, kind of a, a number of different iterations, um, ranging from you know uh, other people who are not present on this call to about a year where it was really just me. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, one thing that we really rallied around as we formed this iteration, which feels like the the one that was sort of prophesied, you know, um, is um, you know how can we structure our business to um, take care of us and the people that work with us uh, and provide, um, you know, a, a sense of, of purpose and joy, um, even when we aren't working. Um, and I think that that kind of, it, it really represents a, a lot of different things. I think one, the idea of um, our our job not necessarily being our entire lives is is a big one. I think as founders of a studio like this, and as graphic designers ourselves, um, Tucker being a developer, but he he's pretty he's pretty dangerous in Figma. Um, is uh, you know we we tend to sort of obsess about our personality kind of being 
what we do. And by taking it out of that context a little bit and sort of treating the studio as the top line thing that we're building, it, it's a little bit easier to sort of remove ourselves from it and make decisions um, in the, you know, kind of effort to build it up um, rather than build ourselves up. And so I think that just kind of zooming out was really helpful. Is it an interesting challenge to bring on people and get them on board with this idea of all right? How do you in turn bring other partners into the fold, adapt their ideas and essentially level up and expand out the idea of what all right is? Second question, I guess, would be like, is there a certain part of letting go that you've had to do that was either challenging or really rewarding? <laughs> those are those are excellent questions. Um, and I think that I speak for all three of us when I say we talk about this kind of stuff all the time. Um, I think it must be said pretty definitively that like the way that All Right was started and the intentions that it was built with were always meant to kind of span more than one person. Um, this studio was originally founded with two other individuals, one of which is, is a, a person that I'm currently married to and was as well at the time. Um, and the reason that it started that way was because over the, the kind of course of my career, I, I and Sven and Tucker can attest to this as well, I, I, I do tend to be an extremely introspective individual to a fault where I sort of am, am uh, really likely to maybe trip myself up by how much I'm sort of thinking about what I'm doing. And by having other focuses and other people involved from the beginning, um, it really helped me sort of set my mindset to be like, let's focus on what I'm actually really good at. Because I knew kind of from the jump that, you know, I am good at the design portion. I'm good at the communication portion, but like finances, I'm not good at organization. I'm not good at um, obviously technology uh, and some of the other like nuances of leadership are, are just extremely not um, kind of in my wheelhouse. And so the uh, actually bringing on other partners to share the vision was actually the easiest part. And I do say this with like so much, I'm so humbled when I say this, but like, people showed up and Spencer and Tucker like showed up already like part of it. Like they were bought in from the jump. And I think in many ways they've been something and they've been a force that's kept me bought in over the years too. Um, so it actually wasn't necessarily a struggle in, in that sense, um, kind of getting everyone on the same page, at least the way that it happened because it did feel so kind of appropriate when, when we did come together. Um, and I think that, by distributing sort of the leadership across three people, it really does feel like the way it was supposed to work. Um, and that's, I think, my biggest, that, that's what I'm grateful for is, is it doesn't really uh, feel like a solo operation and it never was supposed to. I think that something that we continuously work on and adjust to, and we're getting better at it now being, you know, four years or whatever it is into this iteration, um, is the idea that we all came from various backgrounds freelancing. And I think that, you know, inherently the freelance mindset is so much of I own the process end to end. You are responsible for outreach, for client management, for administrative things, for billing, for execution, for negotiation, for, you know, success metrics, everything like that. That coming in here, I think we all 
fell into these roles and trying to figure out like how we could split things, how we could take pressure off ourselves, how we could allow other people to do things that they were intrinsically better at. And mm -hmm. it's been challenging, not because, you know, we want to or don't like to do it, but I think it's just, you know, when that's so hardwired in your mind of how this industry works and your experience within it, that it's been something that we kind of always are working on a little bit about trying to make sure that everybody is doing what they're best at and that we're also not, you know, being duplicative in tasks and requests of things. Yeah. Do you mind sharing kind of the breakdown of your roles and responsibilities? Mm -hmm. For sure. So it's also uh, ever evolving. Um, but right now, uh, we maybe three years ago, two and a half years ago, made the decision to drop sort of secondary titles from our job title. So our title is just partner. Um, which is deliberate because we are doing a lot of different things together uh, and running the business sort of collectively. But we do have focuses, and that's something we also talk about with our clients. Um, so mine is strategy and operations, and that's also usually where projects begin. Uh, so we have these robust strategy phases, uh, and they're also kind of operational where we're trying to put the pieces together for the rest of the project, understand when things need to roll out. Uh, and the actual needs of the client, at least if they're not super defined. And then things get passed over to Garrett. I am responsible for our design and direction. Um, I lead the design team within that is um, kind of a, a, a dual purpose set of individuals. Um, our creative director, Joe, actually uh, spans both uh, me and Spen's disciplines um, in the sense that he hops between strategy and design. Um, and then beyond that, uh, when we have uh, our, our design team, um, you know, I, they generally, you know, re report to me and everything. I think the biggest kind of way that our roles get broken down is is in this kind of like gradient effect that we try to bring in. And so um, kind of moving from strategy, there is kind of a moment where Spencer and I are sort of like in tandem, kind of being the ones leading a project. Um, and then the idea with that is from my end, once things kind of move through the design uh, we're constantly cross-checking it against the other two disciplines, right? And so um, when we move into Tucker's department, which is kind of spanning, I think, multiple disciplines, even beyond technology, uh, the idea is that um, there's always kind of a moment where both of us are together before it goes off to sort of one person being the main point of contact. Everything that comes through our design phase would wind up with some sort of practical output, you know, and I think a, long time, a lot of times that is, you know, especially in our digital projects, digital projects, a uh, a website or some sort of technical component. So I run our technology team. We have mostly contractors and freelancers that work in our technology team. We've experimented with having full-time developers. It's a little bit of a thing that's in flux right now for how our team structure looks like for that. But yeah, so I manage those teams and then sort of the success metrics, what happens after there that leads into kind of the top of the funnel again, where we're trying to figure out especially right now, a little bit more of what are our financial levers to push and pull? How do we vet new business on a more pragmatic level than hype? I mean, I think that, you know, at the outset here, we really just did it by, are we treading water? Cool. And then if we're treading water, we take on the projects that were just the people that we wanted to work with, the projects that we thought were, you know, quote unquote, cool or interesting or prestigious to us in our own mind. And you know, I think that 
not to sound too beaten down over it, but what we've realized over the years is that like cool or not cool clients at the end of the day really are just clients of projects of project. The things that make them good usually are independent from maybe the reputation they came in with or the things that we thought would be cool about it. And most times it's the relationship that we have and the things that we're allowed to do and put out into the world that really make something successful or fun or worth it in the long term. Um, but back to what I was saying originally, I think that what we're trying to do now is to marry that a little bit more with some practical thinking about future goals, about growth metrics, about where we're actually trying to like steer the ship towards and making sure that we are not, you know, selling ourselves short by, I think a problem that we've had historically is we love to say yes to work. So we take on a lot of kind of smaller projects where maybe we probably shouldn't have. And I think that we really over index on that a little bit sometimes. And yeah, just trying to make sure, you know, we still want to do that, but figuring out how to do that responsibly, how to do that, not over leveraging ourselves or our staff and still getting to, you know, work with the people we want to work with and be able to do the things for cheap and sometimes free for interesting causes, for cool people, for whatever it is that comes to the door. Maybe we'll stick with this subject, Tucker, for, for a, a little bit longer and then we can circle back to the full spectrum of evolutions of all right but um mm -hmm. saying yes and saying no is definitely something a lot of designers and freelancers entrepreneurs have trouble saying uh, <laughs> a, they have they have a lot of ease saying yes they have a lot of hard time saying no so what mm -hmm. is the relationship with the word no and how do you know when to actually say it when a project may be cool but you know that it's one extra project that is maybe going to be too much for the team or insert scenario here so i think that we're pretty good about never just saying flat no i think that mm -hmm. we'll always try and say no but you know whether it's no but we can take it on in a few months or no but if we can reduce some of the scope we can do it you know to if you can find any more money we always try and find like a lever that we can pull so that we can take on the work and honestly i think the ones that we're all most comfortable saying no for are when people are asking us to bend or budge for something and then they're unwilling to it makes mm -hmm. it a clear path to just realizing that like it's not going to be a very you know fruitful partnership i think another thing that we are learning um in the no department which is sort of the tucker's point about choosing projects pragmatically is um you know five 15k projects did not equal one 75k project um and we had to learn that the hard way where we were stacking these smaller budget projects that kind of equated to maybe a good budget um and we try to cut corners in order to make the smaller budget projects seem more financially viable but inevitably clients still want process and also if we forsake our process then it makes the project that much harder um and then basically you know you get six months down the line realize you've lost a bunch of money on the thing everyone's stressed out and the work isn't even good um which was kind of the whole point of taking the product on in the first place mm -hmm. so a little bit of learning by doing has also helped us get better at saying no we're now we've been down this path a few times uh so it's a lot easier to just recognize when we're starting to get ourselves into a situation that could end up poorly one of the things that i think has been really helpful at least for for me to learn and i think all of us is is that um um it, it is often for the potential client's benefit that we say no um because uh i think especially when you 
are dealing with the type of project that does start to stack up some of the smaller ones like Spencer's mentioning, um, there is so much of your client invested in a project like that. It's often almost their entire bank account. Sometimes it's their entire lives. It's it's very frequently something that's like so much more important to them than a CMO at some you know larger company. And what we found was that we had through a combination of guilt and imposter syndrome and wanting to just be the best that we can be, we would we would say yes to those things. And inevitably, like Spence said, they would, um, you know, it wouldn't always turn out great. And I think that we would realize that, um, you know, it, it, it just wasn't doing our clients that couldn't really afford the the full big process any good to, to get that haphazard version of it. And at the end of the day, we're really all about customer service because that's what we're doing constantly. Um, and it was really more out of respect for our time and theirs um, than any other reason. Are there certain red flags in, let's say like the a potential client gets into your email, you have a, an introductory call. Are there certain red flags that you're looking for if they would be a good partner or not? And then I think also, in addition, are there certain values that you don't cross the line or compromise on as a studio? So we don't take this type of project because of these reasons. So that's two questions wrapped into one. The red flags uh, question is really interesting because I do think that we have very finely tuned bullshit detectors at this point, but we don't always listen to them. Uh, a lot of the times we'll see the red flags, they'll be kind of blaze orange and waving and we'll kind of just ignore them or acknowledge them and just be like, you know, maybe we can project manage our way around this. And I'd say like 99.9% .9 of the time, uh, the red flags are an issue. Like if there are red flags at the outset, they're going to end up making the project difficult down the line. Um, but also what Garrett was mentioning before, you know, some combination of being people pleasers and imposter syndrome, and also genuinely that we're trying to grow this business, our portfolio, what we're capable of doing um we still say yes to a lot of people that we probably should say no to um i don't really know how we get around that like it might just take time uh for us to kind of get to a place where we're able to listen more uh i don't know accurately to our bullshit detectors but yeah there are red flags we usually see them they're pretty obvious i mean it's anything from a chaotic email cadence where the email is unstructured and like unpunctuated to, um, I don't know, unrealistic expectations when it comes to timing and money, uh, to just like not passing the vibe check, you get in the video chat with somebody and immediately you're like, I don't know about this person. Um, so weird rambling answer, uh, but there are red flags. Uh, I just don't know that we know what to do with them quite yet. And then on the side of values, I don't know if you guys want to talk to that. To the red flag point, I think that all we really ask is for you to pay us the respect that we're going to pay you. And I think mm. that a lot of times we get on with people that show up 20 minutes late to the first call, want to reschedule for five minutes later, don't know the name of our studio, think we're a different studio. Like we've really had every mm -hmm. sort of weird first call interaction. Uh -huh. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, what makes a successful project is like, a mutually paid respect to one another. Yeah. As far as the values go, I'm sure Garrett probably you have better things to say about this than I do. It, it's such a the value guy. It's such a tricky question, and there's so many you know nuances to it. And we've been approached by people before that we're all kind of unsure if you know something is right or wrong or what the perception of it is. I mean, I I do think that 
intrinsically, we're all still struggling with that. Again, that freelancer mindset of like, if I don't say yes to this project, will there ever be another project that comes into my inbox type thing? And so, mm -hmm. you know, saying no for any reason, including like cultural reasons is definitely one of the, we've turned down projects before, I think mostly for people we just don't like or people that we don't feel are respectful of us or our team or, you know, through the grapevine um, rather than maybe like on the industry level, but I could mm -hmm. be misforgetting something that we've walked away from there. Yeah, I think that um, there was, uh, <clears throat> there was definitely a little bit more of, um, I don't know if I should even say this word. There was a little bit of virtue signaling in our values very early on. Like, I'll be really honest when it comes to um, not working with some people. I think that one example of that, that I won't name a name of, but you'll figure out who it is, was a uh, a large uh, co-working um, company uh, <laughs> that had a, a documentary made about them. Um, and in, in my... It, kind of early, I, I think I was 26 at the time, um, they came into the inbox and we had a very kind of knee jerk, like they're ruining real estate, like blah, blah, blah. Here's kind of all the reasons why we don't want to work with them. I think that as we proceed and as I think we get older, I, I don't know that our view on that sort of stuff has necessarily changed, but it has evolved a bit to one, I think go back to that studio as project, like in the sense of what projects we take on, um, you know, there is, at a legitimate gray area in what kind of projects you take on that may be for um, financial or team building reasons. I think that can include money, that can include timelines, that can include the type of industry being something that is either flashy or not. Um, and so when it comes to our values, I think that they are um, very uh, related to the team, quite honestly. Um, we all have mm -hmm. a really good kind of radar for the most the, the typical one that happens is honestly you get an inquiry from someone that has been kind of quote unquote canceled for for various um you know either uh legal or or other types of uh crimes and um the uh the scuttlebutt that kind of surrounds those projects is in, is so much of a thing to wade through as anything else like we've had to have conversations about like you know are we going to pitch on this thing knowing who is at the top of the leadership even if we don't talk to them ever um or are we going to sort of walk away and, and i think that um you know i don't know that we have a, a hundred percent track record on on that per se but i think that um it's all about kind of just being honest with ourselves about what we can sort of feel good about at the end of the day and and to be honest some of the projects that we've started taking on i think are um a little bit like dry to some extent sometimes and and i think that we we really like taking those on we used to kind of steer away from things that were a little bit more um kind of consumer focused um and i think that as we continue to scale and grow we actually have found a, a really great success with working with companies that may not be like the coolest company or the most interesting um kind of groundbreaking um type of of work because it's it's about that mutual respect that tucker mentions like how do you vibe with them and, and how well do you collaborate see i have a red flag that we maybe do pay attention to um and that is if the project or the company is objectively cringe um usually then we just know to avoid entirely and we definitely get some of those it's it's if the if the Google slide deck they send you is over fifty pages and full of other people's work, it's it's often cringe. I think the what you were saying with clients that may not be, I don't know if you said cool, but you said dry. 
um, that are quote unquote dry. I think there's like a beautiful opportunity there to, I, I guess, get them a little bit moist so they're not quite as dry. <laughs> you can evolve them in a way to either meet in the middle, like where culture is or where you think they should be as like an organization. And I think naturally as creative people, we want to work with other companies that are quote unquote creative, but that doesn't mean that these quote unquote dry companies aren't creative in what they're doing already and just need that extra boost. That's probably why they're coming to you in the first place. You just got to hear them out mm -hmm. and kind of work with them to meet them where they're at and then evolve them. I actually think that, I mean, it's been our at least recent experience that we actually do very well with, I guess, the drier companies, yeah. especially the ones that just do trust us, because what mm -hmm. you have is a blank slate and people who are willing to acknowledge like, you guys are good at what you do. This is your field to so go play out in it and do what you mm -hmm. want to do. Um, I think there can be a little bit of a strange, a strange way that things play out. If you work with independent creatives or other people, there's like a combination of points of view, which sometimes can be a good thing. It can work to work together towards like a better product than we would have come up with originally. But it also, I think is it's every time it is something to navigate at the outset, like, whose input goes in here how do we navigate this how seriously are we taking you how seriously are you taking us like where do we move around in it and you know i think i mean one of our best clients the past couple of years was a incredibly dry client who trusted us completely really liked us let us do whatever we want to do and i think we turned out at a really amazing project for them what category was this client in insurance insurance technology insurance technology we we rave about them enough to their faces they would they would know it's basically they were a company that provided the technology that was sold to the back end of large scale insurance companies yeah yeah and that project was i think really kind of funny in in many ways because um and I think we we all have various like times that this happens where kind of one of the partners will, for some strange reason, have like an, an experience or like a, a a line into that client or that industry, and and it's just random. And so one of the things that happened with this was um, my father is a CPA and actually worked mm -hmm. for some of the like big insurance tech companies that um, they were trying to escape from, and it was just one of those situations where like by by me being able to like vaguely kind of talk my way around insurance and, and the apps that have been used in the past, we were able to like kind of get that handshake moment a lot quicker. Um, and this is almost apropos of nothing, but that was one of our first, if not our first um, in-person kickoff after COVID. And I mm -hmm. attribute a lot of the success of that project to uh, getting everyone in the same room that day. I think the cool dry quandary is pretty interesting and actually something that we've been dealing with a lot this year especially as it relates to our staff um where cool is a term that we are trying to essentially uh strip from our vocabularies entirely where we were literally scolded uh for describing too many projects as cool and making that sort of a reason why we were taking work on which actually had sort of the negative or sort of the opposite effect of what we were expecting on morale where um our staff weren't happy about taking on projects that we deemed as cool uh that they didn't really see that necessarily as enough of a reason uh for us to work on something and also just the concept of cool being so subjective so where we mm -hmm. may think something is super cool that they think is super lame um 
And then I think on the other side of that, as that relates to the dry subject, uh, you know, one, like a project may seem interesting for one reason to somebody and very dry to another. I mean, I think like speaking on specific industries, like AI and crypto are sort of interesting examples of this where certain people are stoked on that and other people wouldn't want to touch those projects with like a 10,000 foot pole. Um, but then also beyond that, uh, I think, you know, we try to be as transparent as possible with the team and let them know, like, if we're taking on a project that's maybe a little bit more dry, but the budget is really good or the client seems really nice. Um, but, you know, I think that that is one of these new challenges for us in having a team where when it was just us freelancing, like there was nothing too dry as long as, you know, the money was green. Um, mm. But you can't really do that when you have a group of people working for you that um, also, you know, are partially here because they think of us as making really interesting work. Uh, and I don't know, as we scale, I think that that's increasingly a challenge where uh, you want to be able to continue to make best in class, fascinating work for fascinating clients, but you also need to make payroll. Um, so we're that working balance. on that balance. Yeah. That balance is the thing. I was curious if you do anything like this is a, like a transparency question. You answered it a little bit, Spencer, but when you get new perspective work in your inbox what is kind of like the process that you guys go through do you have the kickoff call talk about it do you go to your team and say hey we're potentially going to take this project what do you guys think or is it you guys are deciding all of that internally and then going to the team it's like kind of all of the above it sort of just depends on the project um we try pretty hard to, you know, we have these Monday morning meetings, pretty typical, where we run through basically what's happening in that week, the status of all of our projects, and then we have a slide where we just talk about general new biz. Um, and we'll try to just run through each project or each inquiry, let people know what the thing is, what the scope is, if we've talked to them, sort of what the vibe check felt like, um, and whether we're chasing the project actively or more passively, just sort of seeing what happens. Uh, but from there, you know, I think unless to Garrett's point um, earlier about like red flags and things we don't take on, unless somebody pipes up and is like, oh, you're talking to so-and-so or this company, well, have you heard about X, Y, and Z? Or, you know, I really don't feel comfortable with us working with them for X reason, which usually happens sort of privately, you know, via Slack or something like that. It's not necessarily aired out in the team meeting. Um, we will pursue the new business sort of as just like a partnership unit um and try to win it basically uh i, th I think critically the one piece that you miss in that process there is the first thing that we do when we get a new business email is we send them an intake questionnaire mm -hmm. which is like our first way of vetting sort of like the reality of the project trying to get a sense of budget or scope or the realities of their hopes because mm -hmm. what we were doing at the first is like getting all these emails and spending the time to get on a call with all these people and realizing that like 50% of the people that email us have just unrealistic ideas of what we're doing or what things cost or anything like that. And so that was a really easy way to free up all of our time mm -hmm. in calendars is to just get that out of the way early. And then from there, to Spencer's point, we just you know, work you through know, it. Back to, back to that concept of transparency. Um, one of the things that we, I, I feel like we made it, we made this decision after using the form for maybe a, a bit was to put our prices very clearly uh, or not prices in terms of dollar amount, but sort of like budget ranges or rough kind of stakes in the ground. Um, and I think that again, 
this will come up so many times, but imposter syndrome, we were like, what are how are people going to react to this? Are we going to get people that are sort of like angry that they're, that we're, that we charge this or people that don't think it's worth it. And, um, most often, uh, we, when people see that and they realize that, you know, their project may not fit within kind of our, our requirements, um, they tend to be incredibly gracious about it. Like, oh, I see that this doesn't quite work out. I would love to come back in a year. And that's happened multiple times where people will kind of go away and they'll come back a year later and be like, hey, we have a budget now. We'd like to talk about this. And it's funny that I think it's almost like it's a retention tool in many ways to sort of just be open about what we're doing here. True. I love that. And if you're willing to share, or even maybe if the, if you can make a copy, and I, I can share mine as well, and we can add this to the show notes, but we also do the same process. We just send like a quick email, and it's covering the basic questions of, let me just get it up, like, what's your time frame? Is there a mm-hmm. certain event that you're, you need to hit to launch? Um, mm-hmm. What are you looking from us? Are you just looking for design? Are you looking for development? Do you have partners or do you need us to do everything? Mm-hmm. Do you have existing assets, illustrations, et cetera, or do you need us to do all of that? Essentially, like how large is your team? Who are the key stakeholders? Who is the decision maker? Um, how did you hear about our work? What are you keen on? I, we we don't do the budget range, but I actually really like that, and it might be something that I add in. Our whole thing is really to get down to scope and budget. We add some other questions in there that are just interesting, but yeah. 99% of why we do it is just scope and budget. Yeah. And we sure. slide it in very subtly where basically we're like, you know, here's our service offering. Um, which of these things are you interested in? By the way, like, this is where the price for service X begins. Um, so actually our intake questionnaire is kind of shorter than yours, uh, yeah. oh, shit. similar right. questions, but <laughs> it is kind of like Trojan horsing, uh, the budget question in there though. Actually, we just added, how did you hear about us? Um, which has been, the answers are really fascinating and very, very funny. Like the number of people that just came to us via Google is kind of shocking. Damn. Um, That's yeah, wild. I know. I don't know what they're looking for, but sure. <laughs> I'd like to think at least that most of our inbound or at least the leads that are legit are organic where it's either word of mouth, um, folks that we've worked with in the past or just being a New York city based agency where we're pretty around. Um, Mm -hmm. and I do think that there's a lot of value in being social, having a community, uh, and being in a city like this where there's just a lot happening all the time. Um, we've definitely gotten a number of projects that came from like one of us being at a function, meeting somebody and actually following up, which is pretty cool. Speaking of community, I mean, looking from the outside in, it seems like community is a big influence on your work in the studio. Um, Mm -hmm. And that could be just working with organizations or events like Bandskitball or (laughs) working with uh, local legends like Roberta's Pizza. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what does community mean to you as, as people, but also the impact on the studio? Uh, Well, so I have a kind of funny answer for this, which um, it might also be like Tucker's answer, Um, but one of the most fun aspects of running All Right right now from the standpoint of community is we're getting to make a lot of new friends and sort of meet some of our heroes and they're all turning out to be 
really nice and interesting and creative and just easy to get along with. Um, and that's been the case for a while now. Uh, but I feel like lately it's just ramped up in, in interesting ways where the folks that we're meeting um, are people that we've been watching or following for years and years. Uh, and whether it's just because we're also nice or we've achieved like a certain station, these people are also down to collaborate, uh, which is super exciting. Um, so that's like what I'm enjoying most about community right now. And then especially being in New York, uh, a lot of those people are here or, or passing through. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, I, I feel like this year I've made like a hundred new friends, which has been fun at 32. Oh, hell yeah. Do you want to name drop anyone, Spencer? Make yourself <laughs> really cool. <laughs> I mean, Tucker and I are uh, really stoked to be uh, befriending uh, this dude, Oliver Shaw, who runs a publishing company called Friend Editions. Uh, and then also our other friend, also a, a Garrett. Uh, his name's Garrett Moran. He runs a company called Garrett Elizabeth Office. Um, he's a buddy. He just was here on Tuesday with his class from Parsons in our studio. But then Michelle uh, Matar, who referred uh, you to oh, us yeah. or us to you, is like a way back friend um, who was kind of like, you know, basically like all right in practice and really all right. And Michelle came up together um, through the dirty streets of New York City. I mean, aside from what Spencer just said there, which is definitely like true of, I think, our current station and the cultural relevance of New York. And I think it's been really cool to to have that and to, to see that and to be a part of it. Uh, I think that a lot of it, I don't know how much of it is due to our beginning, but I think that a really cool thing about community was sort of when well when this iteration of all right began when the three of us became partners together and we tipped off was right at the outset of covid like just before covid really tipped off and one thing that we got to do that was pretty cool was we got to do a lot of work for local establishments we did work with you know uh, a radio show called love injection but at the lot radio uh, roberta's pizza public records i'm sure there's a handful more that you know i can think of here and that did a few things for us. It gave us work in those times. It made people in the city aware of us. It got us in rooms with people. It those people have continued to be good to us and refer us around. And you know, it it created a a reputation and a environment around us very early on for a community. And you know, New York City is a pretty hard community to break into in a lot of ways. It's large, a lot of people want to. It's it's a pretty challenging thing, or it can be at points. So to have that opportunity during that time, especially because you know the need of the moment, especially for a lot of these people, was online presence, was you know an ability to reach people digitally or through means that they couldn't do in their stores or in person or at events or shows anymore. So I think it was a really, fortuitous time for us which I, I always have to say with an asterisk of like i refer to it as this like cool and interesting time obviously it was, we all know how that went but it was, was, also, it was also all the other side of the mm -hmm. coin too but it created you know i think a lot of people have that experience with COVID of these unique opportunities were presented in the vacuum of normal life that were interesting or opportunistic at times it definitely helped to shape and mold i guess uh anyone who was an entrepreneur at that time um and in paying complete respect to anyone who was either lost their business or or teetered on that line um be, like, like my mother for instance who lost her her theater for kids and but it ended up the community got involved and helped to save it and she passed it to her employees so she moved on and still lives on but um it took everything from her at that moment but 
So paying respect to them. I do think that it was a defining moment in culture, but also like helped to evolve a lot of people so that they could understand what was valuable to them as individuals, but also as their business. And it sounds like helped to kind of supercharge your relationship and help you to form this iteration and really strengthen it and define what you're doing now and maybe even what you'll be doing in the foreseeable future. Is that true to assume? I don't want to put words in your mouth. I, I think that's pretty accurate. And I think that um, in many ways, a lot of the projects that um, we took on during that time are not only some of our favorites to date, even going back a few years, but also uh, in a lot of ways form the template for what we would love to do more of. Um, I think there was an element of like carte blanche freedom that was sort of handed to uh, some projects in that space. I think our work for public records is a really good example of that where, um, you know, it, I don't think that a, a live stream sort of programming push was necessarily uh, a completely original or groundbreaking idea, but it was an idea that just happened over a text message with myself and um, Shane over at PR. And we were, and he was just like, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, and we got a developer and I designed the site and, and you know, our name got to go on it simply because we sort of had the intention there. And um, I think that in many ways being, and this was actually what, what I was going to contribute to the community discussion. I think that, you know, uh, as someone who has focused almost exclusively on the act of graphic design for 31 years, I guess not 31 years, not a baby, but, um, you know, the, the art side of things, that's always been my way of contributing or helping or providing support um, to my friends it is like, you know, if you're in a band, I would I'm always wanting to do their, we always want to do their posters or websites or whatever, like anything that can help other people who are doing really interesting things. And there was a unique sensibility during COVID that anything we wanted to do and we being the global, we, we could get together, put our minds to it, make it happen. And I think that to some extent, some of those projects are things that, you know, I would, we would love to, to kind of bring back like, you know, it's something on the level of a radio station or, you know, a cultural kind of moment. Um, so it, it was a lot of good learnings there too, in addition to all of the kind of trials and tribulations. I think we've been teetering on the line of of the studio evolution for a, for a while. There's been a lot of foreplay building up to this moment. Can <laughs> <laughs> So let's go through them quickly so we don't take the entirety of the episode i'm sure there's other places they can learn about this but if you could walk me through kind of the grand evolutions of all right it was all right was formally started in at the end of 2017 um it was technically uh a vision of myself and my partner hope um we were both uh at the end of of our jobs at the time um, and, uh, it was just, you know, I, I think one of the things that I had been, um, really focused on was specifically taking on, um, full-time jobs that would get me to where I thought I wanted to go. And, and the end goal was always a, a studio. Um, I don't know why, <laughs> but, um, that was just, I, I, that was what I decided. And, and so, um, when we formulated the idea, it was immediately like not, Kind of a single person thing it ended up being myself and hope and then our our um our, our friend ian williams who is a, a really successful and fantastic developer under the name gardener now um and 
The way that we began it, I think, was very much rooted in um, something that we were good at, but also something that we could see a bit of a gap in. And that was like really interesting digital work that was in service of like a larger kind of brand play. Um, and so what that meant was we spent about two years sort of doing small full service projects ourselves, but also moonlighting under larger agencies to make their web projects. Um, and uh, that, you know, included clients like UNICEF, for instance, um, which was on the bigger scale. Uh, we did that one with JKR uh, over in New York and they were super amazing um, all the way down to like, you know, um, a, a, a financial, um, you know, a tech company uh, in New York called FinTech Collective, where um, that was in collaboration with another agency called High Tide. And so what we were doing at that time was very much kind of being the craftsman, I think, of a larger vision. Um, the And I forget exactly what year this was. I guess it would have been 2018 or 2019. Um, we uh, uh, decided to go our separate ways, um, I think very much due to um, the nature of studio. Um, in retrospect, I've learned a lot about kind of like why that happened. And I think that it was very much about, um, you know, individuals' goals of, of sort of retaining solo creative freedom versus building something that involved more people and sort of being good at one or the other. Um, and so there was a, a brief moment where All Right was, was really, um, myself kind of primarily and then my partner hope was was a developer as well and we kind of took on um the, the web projects that we took on lasted a little bit longer so in the time that i was doing three or four like identity projects for instance with um other agencies in new york we were also doing like one all right shopify site um there was a uh, fortuitous moment um, that I can still remember uh, where we were actually sharing an office with another agency called Half Helix, um, really talented group of people in New York, um, very, very focused on e-commerce uh, and very, very good at it. Um, they let us they let us share a desk, I think, in exchange for really just like doing their website, um, which was really kind of them. And uh, I'm sitting there and I get this email from a guy named Spencer uh, who, um, was running a project with a freelance client and looking for kind of the web portion of that and it seemed to to feel like a really good fit um i uh very intentionally uh, tried to act much cooler than i was and came up with mm -hmm. this like big like technology like checklist of like here's how we scope this thing and here's how we like work on this um and spencer sort of approached it with i think the same level of professionalism and i think that was one of the things where we were just like we were able to talk and we were able to like just kind of riff and and we were very similar i think in in kind of our goals that way and uh spencer you were in what country was that spain. spain so he was abroad for at least this summer um and when he returned in the fall um i was actually i was i was doing all right and then i was also teaching at parsons and there were many like long train rides back to bushwick where we were just like texting about like work and studio and other people and and it was just the first time that i had been like oh like there's someone else that like is kind of keeping up and, and is as interested in this as i am um and the time that we came together really intentionally because um it just it felt right for one i think that there was like definitely a sense that three is a correct number um <laughs> And when we brought in Spencer, um, one of the very first things he said, like the moment after 
like we had like made the agreement to like be formal partners was he was like there's this guy that i know named tucker and i was like cool another guy like we love other cool guys and um we i believe the night that we like formally became yeah. business partners we then went to orbar which is where we're having our holiday party this year and i met tucker for the first time and um that was sort of i think the beginning i think like everything felt yeah. really magical um it was also like march 9 was it yeah it was like the wednesday right maybe before the friday that like the bottom fell out so yeah. there was kind of just this momentum things were converging in a really cosmic way yeah yeah and and um the last anecdote about that that i think is is really kind of interesting is um we had we had, had various office spaces throughout most of our race history whether a co-working space or um you know a, a small kind of closety office and um when spencer joined the fold we made it a uh, a goal to uh, get a different office somewhere that was a little bit more convenient and and local to both of us and um tucker was actually the only other person in in that office we decided to extend a desk to him and that was really just the natural way that tucker started to join the studio was he started working on um the code end of of a few of our projects and um i think that you know to some extent this is uh, maybe not how to always live your life, but I do tend to sort of make decisions based on like what feels right and is continuing to feel right. And it just felt correct. Um, and at a certain point during this first summer of COVID, we like, I think we wrote him a handwritten letter or something mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. left it on his desk. And then we like left the room, I think. And we were like, will you marry us essentially? Um, <laughs> and he said, yes, which is, you know, I'm grateful to this day. Yeah. I mean, pretty much I had been freelancing with Spencer up until that point while Spencer was as a designer and developer. And then once it all just sort of started piling together, it really just kind of went from there. And we got our studio space right around the start of COVID. And, you know, to my point earlier, that was really just kind of where we worked and also mm -hmm. hung out because there was nothing else to do. So <laughs> we just spent, you know, the next year pretty much in there working, drinking, talking, hanging out roaming around listening to, listening we, to we had a we had, we had a rooftop so we just go sit on the roof it, it was fun it was uh Hell yeah your studio is in bushwick currently mm -hmm. yeah right. I'm, I'm in it right now oh nice so cool that's, yeah that's our new our new studio we moved yeah. studios about a year ago um mm -hmm. we got rid of the smaller one when we staffed up a little bit mm -hmm. and we got a new studio space probably about a half mile from the last one also in bushwick cool because yeah. I'll, I'll just put that up guys we're talking about this it's it's a lot more photogenic than the uh the old studio <laughs> Uh, I couldn't help but notice there's a surfboard in the, the <laughs> photographs. Who's the surfer? Uh, well, Tucker and I both surf. Tucker's much better at surfing than I am, but that surfboard's actually a piece of New York City uh, creative agency ephemera where uh, it actually was from Jin Lane, and it was sort of uh, like the first thing you'd see when you walked into that office um, back in the days of Jin Lane. Um, and basically, like Jin Lane was a big part of us actually all coming together as well. Um, Emmett Shine sent us a lot of early work when we were kind of initially this triumvirate. Um, and when they, well, I think the surfboard survived when they kind of transitioned from Jin Lane into Pattern. But then in COVID, uh, sort of the end of the pandemic, Pattern went fully remote and we were able to pick up a few things from that office. Uh, so actually a number of pieces in our studio 
are the, the, the chair in the chair you're yeah. si- the chair you're sitting in the tv in the conference room mm-hmm. the light above our scene like we, we kind of got a nice little moment of clearing out there all the stuff but the two cool things we got from it were the surfboard which was actually emmett's father's surfboard emmett senior mm-hmm. and then the neon light that we have hanging on the wall which is a young jake neon light mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah Sweet. so yeah. they're kind of like talismans if you will perhaps uh radiating positive energy and keeping us on the grind <laughs> immunity loops right now um our friend ian shiver who's a photographer who we work with all the time and works a lot with michelle uh, and works with all these different people in our community lives in philly actually i kind of discovered him initially because of a project that jenny and mike did at self-aware for a rest or a sandwich shop in philly called middle child um he's in our office working today so like all this stuff is a very small circle for sure his work is insane i mean I, i'll have to uh ask for an, an intro maybe i can do yeah. one of these chats if oh, yeah. he's down um he's down but, I think, he, I think he's actively trying to get on more podcasts. I'm sure he would. Oh, fuck yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> I'd, say, uh, I'd say prepare yourself, strap in, but. Uh... <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm up for anything, man. It's all good. I was um, with him in Italy when he did a podcast that he like actively took mushrooms before and then like went in the ocean for a portion of the podcasts. So. Uh, Dust LeBlanc from Locomotive, he wanted to. He, like we had a pre-call and he's just like, can I smoke on it? And I'm like, I don't give a fuck. And the day, uh, like the day we were about to record, he's just like, I'm representing the studio. I don't think I should just be like vaping the whole time we're recording. But we we ended up doing beers and just drinking, but yeah. There, there's something like ASMR centric about a person smoking on a podcast, but I feel like it has to be uh, a, a raw, stick not like a vape you you, you have to put the the mic up to it to like the bitch flip, yeah. to get like the the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the the ash burning back like yeah and it's like a, 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 a scene for mad men if it yeah, is a vape exactly. you need the sound of the jewel like a light mm. like like heating up just some yeah sound. yeah yeah anyway I, I like that maybe maybe that'll be my next thing is do a whole episode uh dedicated to mad men asmr <laughs> <laughs> the whiskey yeah. pouring over the rocks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, we did get back on that one. I think another like COVID piece was that we were all watching actively Mad Men at the time, and it is a very difficult show to watch and not just want to drink and smoke to the entire viewing. I think right. I was in college when I was like actively walk watching that, and so like I started wearing like suits to class, and oh, like great. I got like into character. I really wanted to be Don Draper, and I tried to like capture that storytelling essence and everyone thought i was a the biggest fucking prick like usually what happens when you cosplay a popular tv show (laughs) exactly they're like this guy's a fucking asshole but the the people that the people that dress up in medieval wear when game of thrones was on similar vibe yeah kind of piggybacking off of the evolution there um Mm -hmm. you had mentioned that all right in totality was like seven-ish years. So that was 2017 to now. So that's seven-ish years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems from the, again, the outside looking in, working with clients such as Noom, Arizona, Ice Tea, Post Malone, Miracle Seltzer, A24, just to name drop a few. And then some, oh, you want me to keep going? Just keep rattling off if you want to for a little bit. <laughs> 
Look at how no, cool no. they are. Don't you want to be like them? You should work with them. Um, but um, I guess, like, how are you able to attract such a wide variety of clients? And, and seven years isn't necessarily short. It's also not necessarily long. So what have you learned from your experience over that time in kind of attracting the right type of clients that you want to appear in the door? And we've already discussed, like, it's it's not only about cool, it's about mm -hmm. kind of the relationship. So I'll, I'll pass it off to you from here. I think that there's a lot of different answers to this um, where, I mean, the shortest is probably relationships, um, where basically all the projects that you just mentioned or all of those clients came to us in one way or another because somebody that we somebody that we know or previous work that we had done. Um, A24 is maybe the one exception where we've gotten a few referrals to them in the past and every time they've been like, yeah, like we love our vendors, we have all the agencies we need, like we're good. And then earlier this year, we just got like a cold out of the blue email um, with the project, which was really sick. That's, um, my, I think uh, that's, that's my print deadline tonight, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, so that, that, that was, email also came in the last day before our little holiday minutes, closure, which is really nice. Minutes before. Friday of our holiday closure. And Spencer and I jumped on the phone with them because I was, we were both like, this is it. This is why we started a studio was, was these moments. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, like um, short answer, uh, I think, you know, relationship making good work for people and when you have the opportunity to work with somebody that may have a network or network effects, uh, maybe going out of your way a little bit to really wow them. Mm. Um, I think a longer answer though to that is perhaps the fact that we've strived for a long time to not have a house style um, where you know we're able to make, and to that kind of preamble point of um, also us working with clients that are upstarts and also well-established, um, we kind of bring the same level of craft to whatever the project may be. Uh, so I think that, you know, the bigger, more established corporate clients see the more nimble kind of sexy creative work that we're doing for the small guys. And they want us to do a little bit of that for them. Uh, then the smaller clients, I think, appreciate the fact that we're capable of working with the big established, you know, process driven businesses. And we're going to bring that same attention to detail to their more nascent brand. Um, yeah, I mean, that doesn't really pay off the answer of like how those projects come in the door, but that's at least how we try to pitch these people when we're talking to them. Um, how they found us in the first place? Do you guys have ideas? I, mean, I think that the reality to that is we still don't really know how things come in the door a lot of times. Like we, I thought you were going to say the Jacob Heffman answer of, you know, doing the work, putting out the work that you want to get hired for, which I think is yeah. something we try and do. Like that advice we got answer. from a friend and an early mentor of ours, Jacob Heffman. Uh, but yeah, I think we try and put ourselves out there in the right way, meet the right people, do well in the projects we do. But there is still usually quite a gray space between what we do and then what comes in the door for us and you know we've been very lucky with the referrals and the people who have recommended us for work but by and large i mean i still couldn't tell you why some of these emails roll in the way they do and when they do are those referrals mainly from past clients and their friends or is it like studios that you've made relationships with or 
It's all over the it's, place. All over. It, it, it's yeah. studios. It's studio friends of ours. It's past clients. Yeah, it really is everything. I, I think it's, it's also just like people. actual friends, people that we haven't yeah. worked with that we just know. Yeah. But I think with with all of that, um, like that, that's definitely I think an approach and a model that works, or at least has been working. Um, the challenge now as we sort of move into the next hopefully sort of phase of the studio where we are even more buttoned up and ideally doing even bigger work is having more control over that pipeline um, where, you know, right now to all of our points, like we're not really sure where the inquiries are coming from, but they keep coming and they keep getting cooler, which is amazing. Um, but now we want to kind of control that a bit. Um, and that's one of our big challenges for 2024. Mm. I can't help but notice behind you, Garrett, there is a lot of music. You happen to be also in Tennessee, and you also happen to work with Denzel Curry and Post Malone. So there's two questions here. One, did you ever get to meet them on the call, which I'm assuming is no. Um, and then what what is the kind of impact of music on you and maybe as a studio? That's a... a, a Good question, and probably one that everyone was waiting to be asked of me. Um, uh, yeah, so one, uh, we did not get to meet any of those musicians. The uh, who I've gotten to meet, I think, importantly, is um, like our our friend, uh, yeah, Andrew Sauer. Sorry, I'm stumbling uh, over my words. Um, he's he's a friend of uh, the studio, and we've met a few other folks that have been, um, you know, kind of influential in that way. Um, when it comes to the kind of the music end of it, um, that was just kind of an easy way for, I think, all of us to sort of break into areas that we wanted to be part of. Um, I think that um, I, I've always kind of said of, of, of my work that like I, I, I want to work with musicians because it's something that I kind of deeply wish that I had the talent um, to do as well. And I think that one of the things that we started to latch onto, and this all kind of is wrapped up in that um, kind of COVID uh, uh, situation, um, was that we were always looking for opportunities to get into spaces that we may not have been able to get into as individuals. Um, and really just the point was to interact with these people that we have always looked up to. And that's in, that could be art, that could be music, that could be a variety of different things. Um, and really music was just one of those spots where if you're not precious about your uh, finances or your budget, there's so much work out there. Um, and it was a part of my personal portfolio. Um, I know it was a part of Spencer's personal portfolio um, in many ways as well. And I think that we have always leveraged the music work as a way to exercise ourselves in a lower risk environment while still getting to do the same stuff that people would generally, you know, kind of hire us for a, a formal project for. Um, a few of the projects that I think have been notable in, in that way was, you've already mentioned the Post Malone project. I would probably classify that as one of, I think, one of the ones where uh, the work that we would do um, on our own with no prompting became the work that we got paid for, where our, our friends over at PlayLab, they were doing, and, and they've done this for a couple of his uh, album rollouts. Um, they were responsible for all the direction of um, that initial album. Um, and they just 
had seen us on on Instagram and online and we'd communicated a few times and they were like, do you want to do the website? And we were like, absolutely. Like that's exactly the sort of thing that we would love to collaborate with you on. And, and we just saw it as an opportunity to like spend time with people that we thought were really talented under the guise of work. Um, and so music is, music is always there. We've, um, you know, had, uh, I think the band, the band skip all thing you mentioned earlier, that was really fun because that was, a, we, we had sort of set an intention at one of our, uh, our last retreat or maybe the one before, um, to, uh, get more involved with kind of the, the community of, of Brooklyn and abroad. And, um, that was like a really great Venn diagram of kind of you know working with the community working with charity and then working with music as well because the whole thing was meant to be a, a concert so um music i think is is super important to all of us individually but it's also just almost like a way to make cool stuff um and kind of get our foot in the door one of those things for us as well and i have certain metrics around this but we did a a little like self-initiated series called the jam of the week and so it, it went weekly for a really long time and then it got to the point where i started doing this podcast and that took priority <laughs> but um, so we did like a, a song that we were listening to and then made like a custom cover for it we put it out on social media and we tracked that like and that the, there could be it could be even more but it was like a, over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars just due to just posting those jam of the weeks and clients Good. like saying oh we saw this we really like that how do we bring this energy this vibe to what we're doing and so i think doing the work that you want to get and putting out passion projects or if it's like a relationship like that like a studio collaboration sometimes it's worth it to get the portfolio piece over the budget i'm not going to ask what the budget was for that in particular but like it could have been good it could have been not but just like doing the work that you want to show the world is probably going to lead to your next project or similar work in the future. So it's worth doing if you have the space and the time. Yeah. And, and I think that um, back to the, the earlier question, I think, you know, sort of focused around community and, and how we think about that, like the um, kind of the, the output of those projects and, and the the documentation of them in particular, I think has been one of the things that when combined with our uh, kind of neurosis around being really nice people as much as possible, um, <laughs> kind of blend together to be like, we're like, we're able to sort of function in the room and, and talk um, as well as kind of have a wide variety of work where you can sort of pull it up at any moment and be like, oh, I've done this or this or this in, in various verticals. Um, and I think that you know, everything we're talking about, I think, to some extent, ladders back to that studio as project, but you really only get there when you combine all of these disciplines of talking with people and doing really good work and being aware and being respectful um, all at the same time. Um, and I think music and, and the work that comes out of that is just kind of one lever um, that's part of it. Well, and you were talking about Pipeline, or we were talking about Pipeline earlier, Britain. Um, and actually, I do think as well, one of the ways that we have made our own luck in regard to the work that comes in the door is just the sheer mass of work that we have done in the studio's history, but especially in the past four years, where whether it is having the portfolio piece that we can then lean on in reference to a client that has like a real budget um, that came from something we did for free or for cheap, mm -hmm. or just the relationships that develop from doing these various projects with people, um, we kind of think of that work as almost like our marketing 
um, mm -hmm. where we haven't invested very much in traditional marketing, but like that work has definitely paid dividends um, from the standpoint of network effects. And now I think we're having to change tack a little bit as we have to be more strategic with the team and you know the way that people's hours are allocated. Um, but certainly like when we were small and we get a lot done between the three of us, that really worked. You have this intense velocity. I feel like you're always dropping something on Instagram. So I feel like we could take an opportunity to get a little bit technical. Mm -hmm. um, how many projects are you working on at any given time? And how long is a typical project? Because you're churning out things, and I don't mean that negatively because it's all good work from my perspective. I'm not going to shit talk you on the call, and I actually don't think that it's, I actually think it's good. So, um, yeah, the velocity, how many projects, and then what is a typical timeline? Mm. I mean, I think quantity, we probably have anywhere between 15 to 20, 15 I mean, to 25. I would say upwards of 30 at any given time. No, 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 not 30. I think, not 30, I think, it's, 30. I think it's like, I think. 20 and call it average yeah. 20 to 22 or something like that as an average with like active deliverables we always have clients as well in some phase of on ice like okay. yeah that was the reason something. but like yeah actively working on them i would say you know call it 20 at the time we have we have and 18 then, right now just for the record yeah and i think yeah i was gonna lead that into the and spend is a good one to talk about this the the timeline situation um because i think that um some of the the part of the reason why um the clients the client number can often get a, a little high is um because of the nature of the work that we sort of do and had been specializing in for most of our history around like digital and, and web um and I think that that's one of the big things that we're sort of like working on this year and next year is is how to wrangle our timelines a little better. Because um, yeah, once once you get into those uh, more complex web builds, um, things start to uh, get a little lengthy. Yeah, like we have eighteen active clients right now, or call it discrete projects. Um, we shouldn't like it should be closer to fourteen or maybe twelve, but a bunch are dragging for various reasons. And then also just more broadly, like we just should not be working on that many things at once. Um, it's not good for anyone. I mean, we get it done and it's fine, but uh, yeah, like that is one of the most sort of like P1 priorities for us in the new year is maybe orbiting around like 10 projects at any given time. Um, and I think going back to that point we made earlier of, you know, five 15K projects is not equal one 75K project that is a symptom of um, the, the number of projects we have on right now is a symptom of us erroneously thinking that that was a way that maybe we could take on these smaller budget projects that seemed interesting at the time. Um, not to say that they aren't still interesting, but uh, we're realizing like the, the human costs um, that come with this much work happening at once. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I'd like to think that we, as the partners really try to pick up the slack um when there are this many projects on uh but you know even if we are doing that things still trickle down uh and we really care kind of first and foremost about not burning out our team um and then maybe secondarily is not just hemorrhaging money on freelancers because we're burning out our team um so it is kind of this feedback loop of getting our shit together so that everybody can be more content the work can be better and uh we're just enjoying ourselves a little bit more 
Yeah, having a little bit more grace in the timeline or the budget definitely helps with some of that. For sure. That is more projects than I've heard from other studios. And it, I'm going to assume that not all are like of the same scope and size. So like some could be more like identity and maybe take less time. And then some could be websites of all different ranges and sizes. Um, I would say they're probably larger than you might think. There's, we don't <laughs> yeah. really have anything in the studio that's, I would say, is like an actually small scope of work or like, I don't think we have anything that crosses. If we consider ourselves to have, you know, three verticals, mm. I don't think we have anything that only touches one of those. Yeah, I think usually something would hit at least two. Mm. Every project, we always start with a version of strategy that can sort of flex in how robust it is. But um, that means that our strategy team is involved on, on every project, followed by the design team at the very least. Because you, you maintain this kind of design agnostic full service uh methodology what is the impact that that has on your business maybe we just heard that you can do so many things and then you can take on these levels of projects and that's why your calendar is full but um mm -hmm. maybe the that is also a little bit of some of the challenge of that but um what is the breakdown of the variety of projects that you're doing at any given time? Is it main, mm -hmm. is it primarily web? Because on your service listing, there's like a shit ton of things. So I was just curious how the work breaks down and the type of work that you're doing. Yeah, so a big part also of why we have so many projects on right now, and this has honestly been the case, I think since we kind of came together in 2020, is that we are always actively trying to uh, pay off that concept of full service um, and really make it known to the client base writ large that we can take on anything and um, we're good at most everything. Uh, inevitably, people know us for websites still. That's what a lot of the inquiries kind of pertain to. Um, and so most, if not all of our projects at any given time have a web component if they aren't just straight up a website. Um, so like we'll be doing an identity and a website um, or some other kind of execution and a website. Um, but, uh, right now we have a number of projects that have no web component, which is very exciting. Uh, like we're, we're doing a couple identities, we're doing a couple campaigns, um, and we're really trying to do more of that work and publicize that work. Um, but also actually, uh, something we've learned about working on websites and we learned this really early, like in 2020, when we kind of were just like a design and technology agency, uh, is that a website has so many moving parts and pieces involved in it. Like it's not just um, layout and typography and color and code. Uh, it's like words and photography and perhaps like a marketing plan and maybe also like a merchandising schema and all of this other stuff that um, first, you know, we didn't realize clients needed. Then we were just kind of giving away because they did need it and we wanted to get the project done. And then ultimately we started kind of quoting for, calling out, charging for, and taking on. Um, so the actual breakdown of what we're working on at any given time, I'd say, is kind of just divided between writing and thinking, designing, and then heads down production, whether that's writing code or taking photos or like combing through photos and footage. Um, and it's divided pretty evenly between those three focus areas. So it's kind of vague, but um, I think that's like a better breakdown than saying, we're mostly working on this kind of project. 
because um, it's more sort of how we're using our brains, I think. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think that's more helpful than like 20% in this and 10% in that. So mm -hmm. definitely beautiful. Let's jump back to community and how basketball entered your life. It ties back to music. It's a really cool sounding event. Um, so a custom backboard for a basketball event. Nappy Nina's up on stage. Can you kind of paint the picture of how you got involved in this um, organization, what they do, and what it means to you as a studio? So that one came in in a really interesting way. We had um, a, a developer uh, working with us at the time, who's still, still a good friend of the studio, um, who is herself the band, but has a band um, called Workwife, who was present at that event. Um, and kind of coming out of that retreat where we all sort of made it a group effort to, to start to um, kind of engage with the community and, and, you know, various kind of just outreach moments a little bit more. Um, one of the things that obviously came up because of uh, Meredith being in the band and, and sort of my background in music design and all the various things um, was, you know, how do we kind of leverage those topics? Um, and I think that one of my favorite things about the entire event was, I think, how we sort of used weird various disciplines uh, to kind of make the stuff like, um, you know, we obviously, uh, you know, the, the event happened, but the we didn't even know, I don't think, until um, a few weeks in that, like, they needed backboards, or, or at least that was an opportunity was to create these custom backboards. And I believe that the backboards in some in some portion were our um, like contribution, um, like financially to the event too. And I, I don't even really remember if, if that was supposed, if the backboards were supposed to be a big part of it, or if we just decided to make them a part of it. Um, because uh, the um, I just designed a bunch of them and then Tucker and I decided what we liked and then Tucker worked with uh, a printer to get them all made. Um, and then they were just kind of at, at this event while everything was going on. Um, the event itself was really cool, but I think the the, the kind of backbone of it was um, to, to benefit this rock camp, um, Willie Mae Rock Camp, um, which uh, does really fantastic work for um, younger people um, who are trying to kind of get into music um, in you know various kind of life situations in different locations than you might necessarily expect for something like that um and i think that the basketball angle was interesting sports is something that we're always trying to do more of the music angle was interesting same there um but at the end of the day it was like kind of an excuse to get all of our staff out to like a basketball game where like our logo was on a board and everyone was having a good time and and a charity was being benefited um and i didn't even get to attend i don't did, did either of you guys get to attend the event there was we had a bunch of our staff out there yeah we were we were all out of town that weekend but yeah, yeah the rest mm -hmm. of the staff went mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it was, it was sort of just a, a, a kind of perfect storm of like a, a very interesting concept mixed with a subject matter that we care about mixed with a, a great cause um, that made a lot of sense. Um, and um, I don't know, it was a good example of us like not needing to spend like it's not like we dumped a ton of hours into like the design or the kind of production. It was really small stuff um, that really added up to to a lot and i think it was just nice to be able to collaborate with both you know my business partners and the rest of the studio on something like that is giving back something actively that's top of mind for the studio 
I would say that it is. I think that we are always kind of looking for ways that are appropriate based on kind of like what we can contribute both financially and time wise to things. I think it must be said that, you know, running a, an agency um, is is difficult work and takes a lot of our time. And I think that we have found most success in kind of being able to give back as an extension of what we already do. Um, so I think one of the things that I, I I know we all want to work with them a little bit more in the in the new year. We've had some email chains with them, um, but a an organization um, called uh, Usual School, um, Useful School, Useful School, mm -hmm. um, is um, run by a really fantastic individual who actually has some um, background with some of our clients um, over here, and um, we were talking with him about really just sort of how we can contribute both in like maybe giving some work but also giving some um just of our time and and mm -hmm. i think that things like portfolio reviews um being able to you know do small amounts of work uh pro on a pro bono basis when the, when it feels right or or otherwise just being able to dedicate our um headspace uh to stuff that we would already be thinking about kind of anyway is is part of the way we're trying to approach that yeah. yeah, I think education um, is really important to us. We definitely try to uh, involve ourselves in guest lectures, critiques, like class visits, that kind of stuff whenever we can. Um, we definitely think a lot about giving back and would like to do more of it. Um, and hopefully that's something that we can do more of in 2024. Uh, it's on our minds, but there's probably room for us to uh, do more, to be totally honest. And I think just um, for the uh, benefit of the podcast itself, I do want to shout out Useful School, um, usefulschool.com. They're a really great organization run by a very, very passionate guy who's doing a lot of good work. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll drop it in the, the link and put something up on the screen. Awesome. You had mentioned sports and mm -hmm. that it's something that you're looking to actively do more of. What are some dream industries or clients that you haven't yet worked with because you've certainly covered a lot of different areas, verticals, industries, organizations. So if you had any dream ones, maybe there's someone out there listening that it can we can make it happen for you. Drake, I want to work with Drake. He seems like a good one. I want to do the uh, the U.S. Open in New York. Hell the ten yeah. The tennis U.S. Open. I think that's like a, a dream, like cultural touch point for New York something in sports, I think that'd be incredible. Right on. So Drake at the US Open. I think a, a team would be fantastic. I don't even have a huge like stake in like what, what sport it would be. But I think um, being able to work on the like, kind of like the identity and the and the kit, all the various like things that go into it would be so fun. And even like, um, I would love so much to have um, some of our work like represented on like a court or something yeah. you know, really big on the floor. Um, I also like to open it up because I feel like this should be tit for tat. If there's anything that you wanted to talk about in general. Heavy and unsexy, but we could talk about uh, this year being like a weird one for uh, mm -hmm. in general. Yeah. Um, I, but honestly, I don't know that we even had that much great fodder on that besides the fact that it was definitely challenging and um i think that i don't know for us extremely humbling where we came off of like three years of just like up and to the right and then uh q1 was just 
slower and quieter than we'd expected um, by like an enormous stretch. Mm -hmm. uh, what one showed us that it can all go away very, very quickly if you don't uh, operate your business thoughtfully and strategically. Um, but I think also, you know, in talking to friends that have been in the game a lot longer than us, or at least have been successful with a team a lot longer than us, everyone basically told us to not get squirrely, not make decisions that, you know, we'd later regret or say yes to some really terrible project because we just needed $20,000 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And invest in ourselves uh, to, you know, the point earlier of that being one of uh, sort of our philosophies of, of, you know, how best to spend our time and energy. And so we took the time to redo our website entirely, um, to do a lot of kind of like internal projects and visioning, and honestly, just enjoy the slowness. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, like we got through it, everything turned around pretty nicely, um, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't just by accident, there was a lot of hand-wringing and um, proactivity, but I don't know. It was it was a, a weird thing also to be going through with a community where it wasn't just happening to one agency, um, which I guess made us all feel a bit better, but it also made it that much scarier where it was like, you know, did all of the money just disappear suddenly, like everywhere? Um, yeah, strange start to the year. It definitely, definitely strange. And I think the question that I have for you, you don't have to answer, and I'll, I'll be transparent about my end too. It was definitely, I, I was consistently busy. Rogue was consistently busy, but the ability to close a project yeah. was so much harder. And yeah. then also the amount of ones that were coming into the inbox was far less, but yeah. also would pick up and then just be things that were just completely not a good fit. So that mm -hmm. was like, it was like encouraging then instantly demoralizing. Yeah, I, I guess if there was any other things that you noticed or maybe some inspirational words if you have them about what to look for or or like, um, I don't know, some sort of takeaway from the experience that people can lean on. For sure, I mean, I think it just kind of speaks to the fact that we as sort of arbiters of culture ride the wave of the culture um, mm -hmm. and that is in the good times and the bad. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know, back to that topic of us not really knowing where our inquiries are coming from, um, but them being good and interesting. I think all of this kind of goes back to the idea of longevity where something else that we're really focused on is kind of like structuring our process in such a way that we don't just have this like, five-year really excellent run where people know about us and we're getting all these cool inquiries and making really awesome work and like flying high and then in another few years you're like oh whatever happened to those guys like we really want to figure out how to craft um, our business model and also the work we make and the way that we work and the people that we work with um, in such a way that we're still here in like 15 or 20 years yeah and we're just like better evolved versions of ourselves Mm -hmm. uh, like I'd way rather be, you know, like the character actor who you're still seeing like 40 years later and he's got like gray hair, but you still love when he shows up in the movie than the movie star that has this good run and then just kind of disappears from the face of the earth. Um, I mean, if we got like a big enough bag that that's why we disappeared <laughs> from the face of the earth, then sure. But, um, yeah, I think that this year having that, that Rocky start kind of reminded us that, 
Um, you know, we need to be thinking about this in a way where our time scale isn't just like year to year. Uh, we're focused on, I don't know, like the next decade without trying to plan that out. Just mm. knowing that the goal is that if this all goes according to plan, like we're still here doing this in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think I literally posted on Twitter today as we're recording something along this very subject line of of like no one cares about the like who's hot at the moment and then disappears. It's like we care about the the person that like lasts a decade or three decades and continues to make great work. Isn't that why we set out to do this job to make great work for as long as possible? Yep. And I think also, honestly, like that's where um having you know 18 active projects can get especially dicey uh where there are only so many ideas there are only so many solutions and i think you need to be somewhat judicious about delivering that to clients i mean i don't know we could probably keep coming up with new ideas forever for a million clients if under duress but i do also think that part of that longevity conversation is continuing to remain solid you know like not to keep making like movie references but um like more of a tarantino-esque approach where uh everything is really killer and you're a lot more choosy about what you put out into the world than somebody that's just going for mass and maybe there's sort of like a certain consistent through line of like a high level execution but some of the plots aren't great some of like the special it's effects that was hit M michael bay <laughs> Transformers 38. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I don't know. I think when you just put a lot of stuff out, um, some of it starts to lose its luster. We're not there yet, uh, but I do think that's something that we need to be conscious of as we head into the next year too. I mean, I think it's been an interesting thing. You know, I think in the initial way of us kind of coming away from a freelancer mindset into, all right, we're a studio, we're doing things in the studio. What does that mean? How can we lean on each other? Uh, like having a staff, what does that mean? Delegating tasks, responsibilities. And I do think to Spencer's point, like one of the things we're working on now is this scale and concept of time and that this is actually something that we can do like this in this current form for a long time and stop thinking about it in like six months or 12 months of a time scale, but like actually try and realize that if treated correctly, we can have a thing that continues to do well for us and grow with us and give us the the vehicle and the voice to really kind of take it wherever we want to. How should we think about branding in 2024 and beyond? Because I think that is something, not from like a trend perspective about like the shift in kind of how we perceive brands in this modern day culture. Hmm. Um. Man, I have like a funny bias on this because I listened to the podcast you did with Michelle uh, yesterday to try to prepare myself for what was to come. And she was talking about how brands, she thinks of brands like celebrities because today they have a lot of outsized influence and they can also exist in all of these different spheres and have these different versions of themselves that um, sort of evolve or adapt based on where you're seeing the brand. Uh, and so I think that that's probably at the highest end. Um, I do think that we're reaching this moment of monoculture where like the word brand is just becoming really icky. 
Um, and so I try to think more or honestly even say more uh, the word business than brand, uh, especially like when we're dealing with our clients. Um, and I don't know, like that's maybe not an answer, but like my branding philosophy now is, or my brand building philosophy now is to think a lot more of these things as fundamentally businesses, not just a brand that's detached from a bottom line and something that's being sold. Um, of course, there is like the personal brand or like brands that kind of go beyond a fundamental business. Uh, but at least in the context of companies like ours and the people that are coming to us for branding, um, I really try to attach the branding case to the needs of the business and also like understand from the client, you know, what it is they're selling and what their priorities are um, from like a pure ones and zeros point of view. I think that that's a cool way of thinking about it. Honestly, I was actually really challenged by that question, and I, I didn't really know how to answer it. But I do think Sven hit the head, hit the nail on the head a little bit there. And like I think in our you know years of doing this, there's been a lot of pendulums that kind of swing back and forth of like what people want to be, how they want to appear, and even like how the work is done, what it looks like, what's popular, everything like that. But I think that we sort of maybe hit this pinnacle of every brand being so just there and in your face and in front of everything and a part of everything and inescapable in so many ways that it's kind of nice to humanize them again a little bit and and i guess dehumanize them a little bit like take them away from trying to be something more than they are and look at them like a business and if a business can do more than that and be something in culture that's a very cool and like impactful thing but not trying to like have that be the initial tier one goal of what you're trying to do which is just be this like in your face wacky ideology that represents your brand but really you are a company and then what more can you do how can you show yourself in a cool way so i think it's a nice way of putting it to them yeah i think that part of the like evolution of brands has been that like everyone is trying to be everything all the time like when you start to go into um and i know this this happens in um, our strategy rounds all the time is, um, you know, there's, there's always a default set of like values that you should stand for if you exist in capitalism and in business at all. And it's no longer interesting or viable or even cool to kind of hammer those same points over and over again, even if they are true. Like I think that, you know, social responsibility and environmental concern and all these things that for a time were huge value props for a brand to stand apart are now just par for the course. And like, if you don't do those things, then you probably shouldn't even be a brand in this day and age anyway. Um, and I think one of the things that we, and, and I, I also really empathize with what's been said um, uh, about this in, in the sense that like, I think we try to just like work almost in a vacuum, not in the sense of like a vacuum of where our work will go and what it will touch. But I think that the second you start to challenge yourself to be like, this has to sort of be, you know, the most original, incredible thing that stands for everything and says everything and contains all the rules for every possible occasion, you then start to actually weirdly limit yourself and what you can do with that brand. And I think that it's the opportunities around, you know, talking with a founder and figuring out like what their thing is and what they want to say and like what they might you know even their hobbies and things like that, that you can start to get a little bit like what's closer to actual reality in these brands and i think that um 
you know, especially, I, I think this was especially notable in sort of the, what I have tended to call like the e-commerce boom of like the past, like, mm -hmm. you know, two or three years prior to now, um, where, you know, it, it, challenging ourselves to kind of find the answer to why do you need to exist at all and making that part of the the output. Um, Cause yeah, again, I think there's, there's that risk to like, you, you can look like anyone and say anything but is that true or reality or even you know effective um and and so it's about being more more intentional i think i had one of my clients shout out to bump coffee in san diego um one of the founders shared when we were working on their website was he said something along the lines of like every brand now is also a media company due to social media and i was just like fuck and it made me realize like that I almost had a responsibility to show up as like a human for the brand and then communicate what the vision of Rogue was, but also like the values and just like the human aspect of it and connect with people on the other side of a screen to hopefully attract the right ideological client to us in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can do that in a lot of ways, but it was all those it was his quote that made me kind of connect all the dots and like, oh, social media is supposed to be social. I'm a human. Humans are social creatures. We're tribal creatures. Like we need communities and we can try to resist that or we can kind of make our communities as small or as big as possible. But ultimately we need each other to survive. So it, it was like a very interesting, but also like philosophical idea that he put into my head that has kind of changed my perspective on branding i think that that's correct like uh it, yeah i mean even just in the the asks we're getting from clients now when it comes to brand development um you know like the the the, the printed collateral like mock-up is such an entirely like bygone piece of graphic design ephemera where now it's so much more about post templates and like i don't know what we're going to show up like on these various social media platforms, some of which we've never even heard of. Um, yeah, I think that uh, the brand voice now is almost as critical as the core identity, if not more. Yeah, so. mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. which I, I think is honestly for the better. Like, I think the more we can um, evaluate a company based on what they're actually mm -hmm. saying and doing rather than what they are putting in their pop up or their video or their website. Um, in terms of like flash is just going to help us evaluate and understand what businesses are actually viable and should be around. Cause I think that's one of the things that is, um, and, and you know, I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but I think like there was a, there, there has been a, 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 an amount of kind of businesses appearing and then sometimes going away. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, I think in a lot of ways. Um, cause I, I, I think that, you know, um, the, the more that you can um, have a business that sort of stands for something concrete and, and people can see that and they react to it and they give money to that and that floats the right ones to the surface is mm -hmm. only better for both the industry and honestly for like design agencies. Like the, mm -hmm. the more people that have something um, worthwhile to say uh, are much more fun projects. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was gonna, you took the words out of my mouth there. Um, we were talking about cool, dry, whatever, those kinds of projects uh, earlier. Projects that are, I won't say cool, but clients um, where 
they should actually have a brand. They should be investing in their voice and the way that they look and feel and sort of the customer experience that begets are so much easier to work on and work with. Um, we've done a lot of projects where you're having to sort of like force an identity into something that just doesn't even really require it. Uh, and while we can do that, uh, it just makes the work a lot more challenging and also at times a lot more vapid. Um, when you get to work on a project or a type of business that actually then benefits from having a strong brand, like it sells more product or it reaches more people, that just makes the work so much easier. It just flows right out of you. It makes sense. Um, so that's definitely something we're chasing too now that we're like a little bit further along, uh, getting to work on projects where essentially the brief enables us to make better work. I think compelling can be our new word for cool probably. Mm. I like that. There we go. Let's do some let's do some fun fast questions. Let's do it. What's something that is fueling you creatively outside of design right now? Movies. <laughs> I was really gonna say horror movies still. Yeah. Well the next question say, is about movies, books and shows. So we can totally do that. Um, well, I'm being fueled by life in general, quite frankly. I don't know. There's just so much going on out there. Like, that's what's keeping me juiced up. The human experience, really. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What's one book, movie, or album that has changed you as a person? I love that question because there is definitely there are definitely answers to it, and I would love to say the right one. I don't know. <laughs> I want to preface this by saying that it, this is either going to be like a deep cut or it's going to be like so obvious that everyone's like, why are you even bringing this up? It was a film um, called Primer, which I'm sure we've all at least heard of um, or, or have seen out there. Um, it was sort of this quintessential um, like low budget film that sort of made the rounds. Um, the guy who directed it um, went on to do, I think he did special effects for Jumper, and then he did um, a few other films, um, or Looper maybe. And, um, but the reason that it made uh, an impact on my uh, life was that I um, read a little bit of the backstory of how that film got created. And it was essentially this director um, starring, producing, directing, writing, composing, and editing the film entirely himself in his garage while he was also an engineer, I believe, or, or some um, kind of mechanical um, trade. And that just made a huge impression on me. I think the film itself is quite vibey in the sense that it's like all very green uh, and sort of like tinted, um, but that sort of uh, almost, I think probably masks some of the low budget quality of it because um, it like looks cool. Um, but uh, the the plot itself is so complicated that you do have to read the Wikipedia page to understand it, and I won't vouch for that. But the way it was created and the output was such like a specific point in my life where I was like, oh, this guy like did all of this himself for no money just because he wanted to, and he thought he could. And that was really big for me where I was like, maybe maybe I could just decide to do everything and and find the right people to work on it with. This is a quick answer. Uh, I think like skateboard magazines probably had a really big impact on me. Just seeing cool advertising in them for the first time. Uh, and I think that that's still like a well that I go back to just thinking about art direction and like referentiality. Um, and I don't know, just kind of like seeing early design executions that as like a teenager, I was able to wrap my head around because they just looked cool uh 
compelling. Yeah, yeah, compelling. compelling. They sold products. They made me want to buy stuff. That's for sure. <laughs> I definitely think mine would. I, I've struggled to find one thing, but I think somewhere in the idea of like avant horror films or indie music when I was younger or something like that. I grew up in a really small town that was pretty like monotonous in the way that it thought and acted. And so those sort of inputs were definitely the things that like helped me understand that there was a world outside of that world or like seeing these weird, strange images. I mean, you know, like Harmony Corinne or something like that in the more public view, just like making pictures that didn't exist elsewhere or like were net new or showed just alternate ways of thinking or that like you could be a part of something that looked entirely different and felt entirely different. You expect me to have an answer to my own question? I would love to hear your answer, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I, I have answered this a couple times. So my my main one um, album that kind of changed my life was like the first Beastie Boys record. Um, Miles Davis was another one. These are answers that I've given on the show. Um, <laughs> but like how he changed music like or jazz like six different times is fucking incredible. Another music reference, and it, those are like hip hop, and then we got jazz. So met, I'll go to metal. What in eighth grade, the band Iron Maiden like changed my whole world, and that sounds so stupid, but like that band is so consistent from the eighties even until I don't remember when their last record came out. I think it was like a year or two ago, but like the themes slightly change and the music slightly changes in vibe but it's the same record over and over again <laughs> but in a new package and form and i think that is incredible they're just doing their thing so consistently and well and with this like strange like fantasy tone to it like i i think they're incredible and almost like a like incredible marketing I guess, um, case study, just because they're so focused on what they do internally, that it just translates to the audience. And if you love them, you love them. If you hate them, you hate them, but they're going to continue to be Iron Maiden forever. And it, I think it was their manager has this quote of, um, saying like, I'm not in the management business. I'm in the iron fucking maiden business. And I thought that was just like a great quote too doesn't think about anything else except for the band and what they're producing so it's kind of a, a life lesson that i've taken away from them i like that because it, it reminds me of um uh i don't know if you've seen the documentary on uh, the band sparks um but no, the it, i would suggest it it's really interesting um because sparks is like these two brothers who are like incredibly antisocial and strange people but also very sweet um and uh, they filmed them actually writing an album and it still to this day after decades and decades of success they wrote um we were actually talking about uh a director the other day and i found out that he had directed a movie written by sparks and i cannot mm. remember what director that was but um adam driver was in it but um uh he they follow them writing their album and they still go to one of their houses and sit in his dining room and just make the album together as two brothers like to this day and they're like you know 60 plus years old they've been doing it since like 1975 and i think that was um i just yeah i i, I love that kind of thing too where it's just they're just doing their thing and you can sort of find them doing their thing wherever they are what is your go-to drink of choice it doesn't have to be alcohol 
Well, I already know you guys are slurping down LaCroix. It's a sponsored episode now. Oh, pure flavored LaCroix. I was going to say New York City tap water. Oh, it makes you stronger. Let's it does go. taste better. You also don't drink New York tap water. Yes, I do. <laughs> All the time. You have, you have filtered water in every house. <laughs> it starts I, I in mean, tap water. It's from the tap. And it yeah, goes yeah. Through a Brita filter of some sort. Oh, that's that doesn't count. That strips it of its uh, essence. Yeah, Actually, it's fil no, filtered no. tap water is filtered water. No, 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 no. In my new apartment, I don't have a Brita, so it's just raw. I'm so, I'm so happy. Raw dog in the water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Oh, wow. Um, Soylent. <laughs> I just didn't eat lunch earlier. Um, uh, man, that's a tough one. I kind of like float between um, beverages uh, and like being in, into specific ones at any given time. So like right now, um, I'm so sorry to say this on in public area, but like I've just been buying bottles of the like Starbucks iced coffee because um, I just it's like easy to drink and um, it's great and super convenient. Uh, so like, that is uh, I'm always down for like a canned coffee of some sort. That was how uh, I discovered the worst canned coffee in history, which is the Republican brand of of canned coffee. Um, one of the one of the crucial anecdotes of our studio history. I walked in with this canned coffee, and Tucker immediately realized that I was holding what black rifle or something terrible like that. Yep. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nip, 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 nip the called you. Yeah, out. yeah. No, I got called out over Slack because um, I didn't know what I was drinking. I was just it was at the the corner store. Um, yeah. I was like, this, this is fun. My question for you then is, what is the best coffee in Tennessee at the moment that you've had? And then same for the for the brooklyn boys up top i do think that i have to sort of like join the crowd and say that crema is probably the best coffee shop in town um what's the other one parlor what's that what's the one with all the uh well there's like there's barista parlor which um i do maybe like but they they did some union busting recently so i don't i don't endorse that um but uh there is another one um that Perky Brothers did the branding for, and it's really oh, good. And I that was like Interstellar or whatever. Yeah, something like that. Hold on, I'm gonna. I have to find it. Oh, well, you're finding it, then we can go up top. Dude, I like don't have a good answer. I feel like all the coffee is bad these days. Oh shit, that's not a good thing. Well, you that's have a strong answer. Yeah, well, damn. You have say coffee in your neighborhood, right? I haven't. Been we do. We do. We do. Says it just. It all tastes like coffee to me. Uh, just like brown I'm, bean juice. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and say I don't think it's a very inventive answer for this part of the neighborhood, but I lived across the street from it for like ten years, and I just have a sweet spot in my heart for it. I love variety. Variety mm -hmm. coffee it was such a good. On, yeah, the, the variety, was so the variety coffee on Graham Avenue was mm -hmm. my coffee shop for like a decade before I moved to Bedside, where I live now. Mm. I think, given my choice, I would also pick variety, but mostly just to have the cup. Because the cup is kind of like an accessory where you can just kind of like casually yeah. like suck on the straw and like you know. I mean, I have all of all of the the art muds they put out here too. I just I don't know. I love variety. That place has been good to me forever, and it's definitely popular and uh, uh, picked up. But good cup of coffee and a good crowd. No, it's a, a prestige cup. I was a big variety head. I'm in for the cup, personally. The Nashville shop is called Retrograde, and I do. Ah, don't, don't let don't let me forgetting the name spoil it because it is fantastic. Hell yeah! 
there's so many there's so many good spots in brooklyn um i so my wife and i did this this fitness challenge um it was like at the tail end of COVID. it was called 75 hard and we had to do an outdoor workout that was 45 minutes long once a day regardless of the weather and we used it almost as an excuse to like travel around the neighborhood and we had it mapped out in a 45 minute walking radius all the coffee shops and like on a spreadsheet like a fucking lunatic we had which place did the best of what thing so like this place had the best cappuccino this place had the best iced coffee like if you wanted a pastry in addition to your coffee this had it and we were looking neighborhood so we were in red hook so we would go to Carol oh, right. um yeah. because it, at the time it was it was baked and then also was, black flamingo in red was hook. canteen over there at the time smith canteen that was a really sick spot that was the first time i'd ever had an espresso lemonade combo oh shit that sounds okay. great but yeah. I, I haven't been to Canteen, no. I think it's closed now. I think it was owned by the same people that had that chicken place. Um, oh, okay. Too. Yeah. That, that okay. can be my insufferable coffee take, which is that I am still waiting for New York to pick up on the espresso tonic. Mm -hmm. We talk about this a lot. That is like my, my favorite afternoon coffee drink that I only really they want say that, right? coffee in the morning. They might have one at Say now, but it really is like not a very common thing. I actually don't know if they have one at Say. They have one at one of the coffee shops around there, but that is something that's very much in LA and very much in Europe, but for some mm -hmm. reason just has not like hit New York. I don't know. Maybe we're all too stubborn East Coast people. Yeah. It's like that video of the dude getting yelled at for asking for a scooped out bagel. <laughs> just can't you can't you can't add adulterants to your, your, yeah, your coffee for here. Sure. Um because it's funny because like some places will have uh like the seltzer like tap so you can get like the the filtered water and then like the sparkling right there like and i feel like that's such a great combination of having like like either like just an espresso or some sort of espresso based drink with a seltzer or tonic on the side i've never done the espresso tonic so i'll have to try it and see give my full yeah, review you, you, you you have to go to a place where people are like that's they're doing that because it's mm. you know they give you the whole nine yards you have like the dried orange in it it's a it's a wonderful treat in the afternoon oh nice i feel like i'm missing out i like it go to la oh, I, i've never even been to california i'll, I'll see the, the, oh whoa brother so that's, yeah. that's a conversation topic that, right that, there. that was me until a couple years back and we've been i've been a couple times we went to la this year yeah, yeah. I'm I'm from California, so I can. You can vouch you for absolutely. The state. You should go there. I can I can vouch for the state. Yeah, okay. even though I guess I left it technically, but I did. <laughs> I did. California apologist over here. What advice would you give to your younger self? It could be at any age. Uh, don't change anything. <laughs> Just do all of the stupid crap that you're gonna do anyway, and it will probably work itself out. Hard to not be super corny with these ones. I think it's definitely an element of like uh trust yourself. Mm. Just like mm -hmm. don't be worried about taking the jumps. I think that you know, I think everyone, but speaking personally, had a lot of moments of needing to just sort of like take a, a blind dive into the deep end and just make it work out. And the more I did it, the more comfortable I got with it and the better things turned out from it. But 
when I was younger, definitely the first times you do it, it's just a big risk. And yeah, no, knowing earlier on that like you're gonna be fine. And if you if you care enough, you're gonna work it out. This question always makes me think of like time travel movies where they're like, if you go back and you adjust one thing, like the whole world explodes. And so that's like the <laughs> that's the mentality I go into it with where I'm like, what what would I tell myself that I don't think would like result in a different outcome? <laughs> I think that um probably some notion of like you know at the end of the day like everything's kind of the small stuff um is something that i would maybe tell myself um you know just not not sweating some of the details um but in reality i think that you know there's a lot of stuff that i would probably say was like a less uh uh less good uh personality trait that still got me to where i am now and i think just kind of working on yourself as you go is important well i feel like we're at a point where we're winding down we've been going for long and steady uh there's a a24 print proof that needs to be done so time is of the essence uh, are there any closing words that you would like to extend to the audience at all right dot studio and all social media wait hold on no i think that i think our twitter is underscore yeah you don't you don't you don't you don't have to follow us on twitter you can follow us no, on instagram though twitter twitter is yeah twitter is a different aren't like most of you just like off twitter garrett yours is closed because i tried to find you and like read all the things that you used to write on there I don't, oh, don't know if that. I could even find yours, Tucker, if you have one. Tucker's Twitter is fantastic because he just started tweeting, like, like I, I don't know what the word is, but not mentions to other people. Mm. Adding? Like, new tweets. I have, I, I have a, a very nondescript Twitter account. I'm, I'm much more of a lurker on Twitter. I, I enjoy uh, Twitter. Nice. But never really got into the posting on it. Yeah. Gotcha. And then Spencer's is like, I'm trying to do Twitter. That's like literally like what it says. That's correct. Actually trying to tweet. Yeah. I've been, yeah. I'm not been good. I, I posted uh, a grid Instagram post today for the first time in like three I saw or four that. years. And I commented. I was actually gonna it. comment on I was gonna comment on that, but I didn't. People, well, people are just, charged up about it. Well, it's wow. because it's this happens when I think any of us post grid posts is just general people are like, when do I get to be in a grid post? Is there anything that you would like to promote about the studio? Any products that you guys got going on or uh, information people should know about? We're going to be hiring in 2024. Um, we're looking for all kinds of people from all sorts of backgrounds. You should be in New York City. Uh, this is a hybrid role uh, where we try to be in the office Tuesday through Thursday, but otherwise it's quite flexible. Um, I don't know that we can drop exactly the roles that we'll be hiring for quite yet, uh, but we're definitely interested in people of all levels of experience and um, you gotta be able to write. Another reason to follow us on Instagram, you'll see when we drop all the job descriptions. <laughs> I mean, how would we summarize this episode? I mean, it, it sounds like to me that the studio is the project, it's the greater project. The clients are an extension of that. I mean, I think just trust yourself, make the work that you want to see in the world. Sometimes you should take the budget at face value. If they're good people and they're doing something cool and it could help you out in the future, it might be worth taking. Uh, we also learned that 18 projects, 20 projects at a time may be too much. So to the audience out there, remember that we're all legendary and have an amazing story of our own. So on the journey, take the time to be kind, to grind and unwind. That's the main important part. The grind is not the main piece of our life. And let's make the world a better and more creative place to live.
Thank you so much, guys. It was really a true gift and pleasure. It was great to meet all of you. And I mean, this is our first time chatting. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no, this was our amazing. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, for real.